Hello and welcome to The Intellectual Bend. I am David Gonzalez of Weird Fish Media and this is my show. Okay, today we have a special episode. We interviewed Jay Warner Wallace for the Faith to Influence community in October. And this episode, of course, is featured also on the Faith to Influence podcast. You can find them on all the different podcast platforms. I really enjoyed this conversation and all the insightful information that Jay Warner Wallace provided us. And I hope that it's insightful for you guys. Here it is. Jim Warner Wallace is a homicide detective as well as a an apologist, and he's in my eyes, he's pretty prolific. I follow him on Twitter and he, the amount of resources that he puts out out there is just amazing. I can't even keep up with the amount of stuff that he's sharing and posting. He's got his own podcast. He's got a show. He's, he's got quick show. I mean, his blog is pretty prolific. I loved his book, Cold Case Christianity and Forensic Faith. I haven't read uh, uh, God's Crime Scene. God's Crime Scene. I saw that you put out something for kids, God's Crime Scene for yeah. kids. Yeah, all the books have kids' versions now, so that's kind of neat. Yeah, you've got curriculums, you've got everything on your website. Like, it's just yeah. phenomenal how much you have on your website. And what a great resource and a blessing you've been in my life and to a lot of people that I know. So, Jim, oh, Ross, thank you for, for coming on our weekly. Yeah, no, glad to be here. Thanks for do having me. I, do you mind if I ask you just a little bit? One question I'll let you get into your content is, can you tell us a little bit about, like, what you've been doing and what got you into to the, to what you're doing now? Uh, well, you know, I was uh, working in Los Angeles County working cold cases, um, and I worked a bunch of other investigations prior to that. I was working robberies and homicides, and we had a bunch of unsolved murders um, going back to about 1970 or so. A couple in the 60s were just too old to work, and uh, they were sitting in our files, and our sergeant said, you know, you should, we should assign these as collateral duties, you know, as collateral cases, but what that basically means is no one's ever going to work them because you have fresh homicides that are going to take precedence. And once you start working a cold case, it starts to run like a, a fresh case. You know, you, once you, uh, until you knock on the guy's door, it's, it's fine. But the minute you knock on his door, well, now you're, you're at the races. You're, you're doing everything you would do in a regular case. And, and so it's hard to get guys to bite off another case when they don't really have to. You know, they usually just work and say, I'm busy. I'm working my other cases. So that just sat doing, you know, I, I, I got injured. And as a result of being injured, I had, I was sitting light duty and they weren't assigning cases to me. So I just picked up a cold case and I solved it. And then that started a whole series of forming a team. And, and then we were doing cold cases full time. And that really is what gave us the most success. But, um, you know, along the way, I was not raised in a Christian setting. So I, I didn't have really any um, uh, like friends or family members that would introduce me to the uh, Bible or just talk about the New Testament. I just caught most of it, you know, from my own, uh, just kind of culturally and from the people we were arresting who often told us they were Christians, they would share things with us that we would laugh about. But, uh, I was about 35 when I was, uh, first introduced to the New Testament and read it and bought a Bible. Um, and it was pretty uh, standard pew Bible. So it's just that typical, you know, pew Bible you see in churches. Didn't want to spend a lot of money on this. But I started using what's called forensic statement analysis. 
And what that is, is it's a, uh, it's part of an interview process where the first thing we do is we have people write out the statement they're going to give to us. And we don't give them a pencil, we give them a pen. We give them one side of paper, we tell them to stay on that side. Uh, it's got 24 lines. We, uh, then we can assess what they're saying later because they've got to cross out any changes they make as in pen. It's an ink. And then we're assessing it for different kinds of deception indicators. Um, so this is a process I have been familiar with working with suspects. And each indi kind of indicator is a different color. So when we're talking about expanding time or contracting time, that's one color. Use of pronouns, another color. Tense of verbs, another color. And you start looking at all these things to see if there's anything that would indicate that they're being deceptive. And then you can actually start to focus your interview on those areas on the statement where you think, here's the problem right here. So I did the same thing with my New Testament, you know, and so every page, if you look at this, is divided into colors in which I'm looking at, and I can open up any page here, and you'll see that all of them are the same. You know, it's just because I did that with every single gospel, just looking at places where I'm saying, hey, here's a problem. Here's where I got to come back and connect this to another statement, connect this to another gospel. It's about six months in, I was pretty convinced that they were telling me something reliable about uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And that really was started it all for me. That's that's where that's how I became a Christian. Uh, ultimately, that doesn't make you a Christian. It gets you to believe that. But once you start to trust the scriptures, then you can start to read them for what they say about you. And that'll move you toward belief in. I, I really love your your approach to the defense of the faith. Like it's just, it's so well thought out and thorough and you come at it, you have like all these different angles that you make sure that align to validate the gospels. It's, and well, you, I just kind of keep, you just keep it in the perspective of, you know, there's so many ways to, to, to cut this pie. And you see a lot of different kinds of experts will do that. But in the end, I'm only interested in what I can figure out evidentially and then communicate to a jury. So if it's not persuasive, if I'm looking at it and thinking, ah, it's a case is okay, but it's not going to be persuasive in front of a jury, well, then I know it's not, it's not ready. No one's going to file that case. The DA is not going to file a case like that. They can't win it. So I'm trying to get to a place where I feel like, okay, not only is this persuasive, but I can communicate this to a jury in a persuasive manner. And that's usually when you know you've got the truth, right? Because uh, it's hard to persuade people of the lie. People think it is. No, it's not. It's not easy, especially when that's not, you've got six weeks to be cross-examined. It needs to be true in order to withstand that kind of scrutiny. And so I, I, my, the, what I try to bring to this is that I'll, I can tell you pretty much when we're at a place where, okay, now you've got a persuasive case. And a lot of times people don't understand that process because even though a lot of books have been written with words like evidence in them or trial, or they're written by people who have never been in a trial and have never actually used evidence in front of a jury. And I read some of that stuff, and I'm like, yeah, it's all right. Not a great case. I wouldn't use that in front of a jury. So I just try to stay in those small areas that I think are really persuasive and would work in front of a jury. I hardly ever get to talk about the most important apologetic, because I'm an apologist. Right? What I do is I share the evidence for why Christianity is true. And I will tell you that a lot of men who are involved in either business or in, I, think the mar I work in marriage settings, like uh, Operation Heal Our Patriots, which is through Samaritan's Purse. These are wounded veterans who come back and they are having difficulty in their marriage and they go on these retreats. Well, what I discovered is that a lot of those men will go because their wives are making them go, you know, and, and it, it ends up being something that appeases their wives 
Um, they don't necessarily believe it's true, or they're not even sure how they got there in terms of their beliefs. And so their commitment to this is good, but if they have a bad year, they're not necessarily as committed because they really only saw it as something that was working for them to help them in their lives. And when it stops working, they have a tendency to kind of withdraw from that and say, well, I'm not sure this is really, it's look, it's not true because it works. It, it works because it's true. And so the question is, do we believe as men, can we articulate that this is true? I, what I see in the church is really interesting. When you ask people why they are Christians, I want all five of you to think about this, the seven of you all together. Like, what would you tell somebody if somebody asked you, well, why are you a Christian? I bet it would be one of these two things. One, you were raised in the church. Or two, you had an experience that demonstrated for you that Christianity is true. Okay, those are the two most popular answers. But it turns out those are the two most popular answers for every kind of theistic believer. I've got Mormons in my family, six half-brothers and sisters, all raised LDS. They'll tell you they are Mormons because, one, they were raised in the church, and two, they've had an experience of the Holy Spirit which demonstrated that Joseph Smith's a prophet of God and the Book of Mormon is true. It turns out those two things will not keep you from error because everyone thinks that's why they are what they are. We can do better than that. That's why, for the most part, I don't really share my testimony. I don't think my testimony matters. I don't think any of your testimonies matter either. What matters is, is it true? Mm. And that should be what we're focused on. So if you're going to ask me why I'm a Christian, well, I can give you a hundred reasons based on the evidence of the first century, what happened related to the resurrection, why I believe these documents are reliable after testing them, why I believe that God is the best explanation for the features of the universe that we see that we have to explain the beginning of the universe, the fine tuning of the universe, the beginning of life, the appearance of design and biology, mind, free agency, moral truths, even a standard of justice that we use to call something evil. You can't get these things from space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. These things require a transcendent, all-powerful being. And I can explain those in any one of those categories. Why? Because I bet you the people who are listening right now have got kids. And our jobs are important, but your kids don't really think this is true. If they are the statistical average in America, most young people don't think this is true. Raised in the church and young people are leaving the church in record numbers. And most of the times because they don't think it's true. And when they ask us as their parents, Hey, why is this true? Why do you think it's true? We really can't give them good answers. How do I resolve this issue between evolution and creationism and the age of the earth and all these different questions that kids have, we have to be ready. I think to answer those as dads, that is our role, okay, first and foremost. But as I travel the, you know, or the country and talk to people in the church, I'll just be honest with you. There's not many people who are even interested in making the case, which is sad because their kids are interested in hearing the case, but they just don't make it. So I've got, I've got a lot of questions. And Go. the first one is, mm-hmm. you only had five minutes to sell someone on why this book is true, why the Bible is true, why Jesus is king, how would you do it? Well, okay, this, makes, this book makes fantastical claims, crazy claims, and it makes claims on the basis of four documents that allegedly are based on eyewitness testimony. Mark is writing at the feet of Peter. Luke says he's talking to all the eyewitnesses. Matthew and John are eyewitnesses. They write four accounts. Why would you trust anything in them? 
Well, it turns out when we test eyewitnesses in the jury, there's four areas that we test them under. Number one, were they really there to see what they said they saw? Number two, can they be verified in some way? Even just touch point corroboration is good. Three, have they changed their story over time? And four, do they have a bias that would cause them to lie to us? That's how we test eyewitnesses in criminal trials. If you apply those four tests to the Bible, the question is, would the gospel authors pass the test? Well, it turns out they do. This is an early document. This is not written after everyone who knows the truth is dead. And I can make that case. That's a case for the early dating of the Gospels. Critics will claim these weren't written by eyewitnesses because they were written 100 years after the fact. That is not true. They are written maybe a couple of decades after the fact, which I can understand because I think those authors really thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. It's after the first one is killed, James, the brother of John, the first of the disciples killed. That's in 44 AD that suddenly we see Gospels appear. It's kind of like, hey, we're not going to get out of here alive. We better write this stuff down. I think they've been corroborated in a number of ways from archaeology. I also did that forensic statement analysis to make sure I could corroborate those claims. Are they internally consistent? Three, have they changed over time? Well, you know, that's another claim people will make. Whatever you think you have in your Bible today is not what was written in the beginning. The Jesus of Nazareth, who was a simple preacher, became the Christ of Christianity after the Bible was changed hundreds of times over the first three centuries. That's the claim. But the truth is we can go back and we can see what the Bible looked like in the first century by looking at the students of the disciples who quote their masters. They quote the eyewitnesses. The story of Jesus does not change over time. He's always been that crazy dude who was born of a virgin, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. You're stuck with that version of Jesus. It's early and it never changes. The last one is why do people lie? You know, why, why would, would people be biased or motivated to lie? I'll tell you, I'm here to tell you there's only three reasons why anyone tells a lie. Only three. They're the same three reasons why people kill. Same three reasons why people steal. They're the same three reasons why you've ever done anything you shouldn't do. There's only three motives to bad behavior. And we know this working in cases. I learned it working in cases. It turns out there's also in scripture. I just didn't know that. But I learned it just working murders. So here they are. Financial greed. Sexual lust pursuit of power. That third one, the pursuit of power, it ropes in a bunch of stuff. When one gangster kills another one because they've been disrespected, what is that about? It's authority, power, and respect. That's all in that category of pursuit of power. When one guy walks into a business and kills 30 people of different skin color or a different political affiliation, what is that about? It's about authority, power, and respect is in the third category. So we know that those are the categories that drive people to tell lies. So if you think the disciples are lying about Jesus, we know why they are has to be one of those three things. Those are the only three reasons why anyone lies. So you tell me, what is in it for these folks who are eventually going to be tortured and die for their claims? Are they getting money out of it? Now, what Bart Ehrman, the famous skeptic, says is that he believes that, that they're getting power out of it. They're getting the authority and respect of their peers because they're the eyewitnesses. But that makes no sense because Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, already had that authority and power as a Jew who was commissioned to chase down the Christians. I don't understand why he would jump out of a position that's safe and authoritative to jump in with a crowd where he's going to get his butt kicked all over the planet for the next 30 years to hopefully get back to what he already started with. So I think a lot of this is just about how can we communicate the nature of reliable eyewitness testimony and then is this reliable? Now, you can take that same four-point test and put it on the Book of Mormon. It won't last long because Joseph had all three of those reasons to lie. And he lived those three reasons out. He had 32 wives. He was supported by the church. 
He had the respect of his peers. He even had the ability to draw a, a, an army of Mormons. That was at the one time that was the largest standing army on the North American continent, next to the United States militia. He had all those things. He had good reasons to lie. So I, I think that you have to look and kind of compare. And you can do this with everybody. You can do it with Muhammad. You can do it with whoever you want. It turns out this document does. Now you're stuck with this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And then you got to figure out what to do with them once you're stuck with them. I just saw the, I, I reviewed the, and posted the Pew report that came out on how the church is pretty much, it's bleeding dry a little bit. And you see the doubling of atheism. I mean, it went from 2% to 4%, which doesn't seem like a big number, but it's yeah. quite, a, quite a big number if you think about it. And if it's compounding, that's a scary thing in our Western culture. Well, I mean, look, if you look at Europe, Europe's about, you know, what, 25, 30 years ahead of us. Um, no. So it, it, this, we're on a course. I don't think that, I think Europe was not nearly as committed to its religious upbringing as America is. So I don't think it will happen as fast here. But I do think we're seeing about a percent a year drop. Now, we're seeing a percent a year drop for those people who identify as Christians. So when we were once at 88%, we're at about 65% right now. It's probably a little bit lower because it's about a percent a year. We haven't taken a good Pew report in, what, four or five years now? So it's probably a little bit lower. But what we don't see is a percent a year increase in atheism. We see a percent a year increase in people who say they are no longer religiously affiliated. They call these nuns. They check none in the box of what religion do you hold and so it's not that we have necessarily young people who are jumping into atheism that's growing very slowly what we have instead are young people who just never really believed that christianity was true to begin with and now that it's no longer popular can i just say i'm not a christian yeah it's not gonna hurt you to say that anymore you know if you said that in 1960 yeah believe it or not as crazy as the 60s were that would have had an impact on the people around you you probably wouldn't have said it you were just you know yeah how would you identify i'm a christian what does that even mean? I don't even know. But I, yeah, I'm a Christian. Now it's like, yeah, I don't believe in any of that stuff. But they're not necessarily opposed to the existence of God. Right. Mm. So that's a group we can still reach. And that is probably your kids. So the question I have for each of you to think about is, why are you a Christian? Mm. Why would you be part of an organization like this where you think that you would apply Christian principles? I mean, why couldn't I apply? You know, probably the better business practice for you guys, if you're interested in living your faith out, is to become Mormons. They are far better at business. Most of the big businesses in America right now are Mormons. They are one of the most successful groups, Chinese, Indian nationals, and Mormons are probably the three most successful groups in America today. And now you think about that. And by the way, you know you don't behave nearly as well as your Mormon neighbor. You know that. You, you know that. You know Mormons. They are much better people than us. Well, of course, you shouldn't be surprised. When your salvation is dependent upon your good works, you will have lots of good works, right? That, that's how this is built. And maybe in some ways, works-based theologies like Mormonism produce better people because they know that's how you stay saved. And I think what we do is we take our, the grace of our salvation for granted. And we kind of, I do. I definitely do. I definitely push it as far as I can push it. So I, if all we are are Christians because it has a good outcome in our marriages, it helps us to our business practices, get out now. Right? That's not a good reason to be a Christian. Yeah. It turns out there are better theistic systems you could join that would do better for you. That's, that, that's what you're after. Hmm. Now, on the other hand, if it just happens to be true, you've got no like Peter. Where else can we go? That's what Peter said to Jesus. What else? What, what choice do we have? 
Yeah. Well, yeah, you can go to a convenient lie, even a lie that works better, but it would be a lie. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. That's why I want those of us who are men, we ought to be have a biblical idea of masculinity that says that even though this is not an easy world view, we're in. And we're going to stay in. If we're alive, we're going to fight till we're... Look, here's what Jesus said. It's crazy. This is what he said. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth. And he started to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for they shall theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he says this. Blessed are you when, not if, when you are insulted and persecuted and falsely accused of all kinds of evil because of me. That is going to happen. That's what we get for joining. Insults, persecution, and false accusations. And by the way, if you are not experiencing that right now, maybe you're not doing this right. If you are doing it right, you're going to experience those three things. And he says that basically in his sermon, he says, yeah, blessed are you when you're insulted and when you're persecuted, when you're falsely accused of being all kinds of evil because of me. He says, that sucks. You should leave. No, he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And why do they persecute the prophets? Because they spoke the words of God into a world of fallen humans. And anytime you do that, you're going to get thumped. That's what biblical masculinity tells me to do. I said, yeah, this is like the worst choice of worldviews. It was never designed to make anything in your life easier. It was designed to make everything in your life right. Hmm. That's a much harder process, a much harder uh, program. And so I would say, look, I tell young people all the time, if you want to be part of this, you want to be a Christ follower, you can't be a Christ admirer or a Christ redactor throwing half the stuff out, or a Christ modifier changing the words. No, you want in? This is going to hurt. This is going to hurt like a spanking. But you'll be in the truth when the whole world around you is not. And so I think that what we have to do as, as men is help our, our kids to see this is actually, it's a beautiful thing to be in the truth. And that, that's a high regard for truth that keeps me here. You had said that there's the, the four things that you test for the truth with the jury, it was, were they really there? Have they changed over time? Are they biased to lie? What was the first one? The first one, were they really there to see what they said they saw? So that's going to come down to, are the Gospels dated early enough to have been written by people who were really there? And more importantly, written in front of people who were also really there, who would know if they were lying. If you want to tell a lie about Jesus, just wait till he's dead. Wait till everyone's dead. Wait till the whole generation is dead. Then you can say anything you want about Jesus. So the question is, how early do they date? Second, can they be corroborated in some way? We can use archaeology to do that. There's something really interesting about the New Testament. The small things. This is a cumulative case, okay? The small things will help us. You know, for example, there were lots of gospels written about Jesus that were written late in history, out of the region mostly in North Africa. And these late Gospels, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Philip, 
It turns out they don't say much about the geography of the area around Jerusalem because the people who wrote them were living in Egypt and had no idea what was around the area. Not only that, they didn't know what names were popular in the area at the time. We've done a study on this now. We actually know what Jewish male and female names were popular in the first century in Egypt, completely different than the popular names for men and women and Jews in the area of Jerusalem or in the area of Rome. These are different names that were popular. It turns out the gospel authors luckily happened to get, wouldn't you know it, all the names right, all the locations right. And people who write late gospels don't even mention these names and don't mention locations for a reason. They don't know the geography of the area. They don't know the people groups. They're too late in history and they're not writing in the area. So we're looking for second thing, corroboration. Third thing has it changed over time. Fourth thing is bias. It's about motive. What three things cause someone to say something that's not true. So those are the four areas you look at. And it turns out they're in jury instructions. So we have jury instructions we use with jurors in every state in the union. Um, and they're pretty similar. And so what we do here in California, there's 13 questions you can ask yourself as you're listening to eyewitnesses on the stand. But those 13 questions break into four categories, the four categories I just gave you. Remember, when I'm working on cold cases, I often have notebooks that are huge that are um, presented to me. They're usually read because they're unsolved. And so I open them up, and there's a supplemental report in which a guy has interviewed a witness 35 years ago. That witness is now dead. And the guy who interviewed that witness is also dead. So I've got a report where I have no access to the eyewitness or to the person who wrote the report. That's kind of what the Gospels are. So I just use the same process I use on cold cases to investigate the Gospels. Hmm. What do you notice in the four different Gospels that tie them together and suggest that everyone's telling the truth, even though they have slight differences of their way of retelling it? Well, there's a guy, and I didn't know this, but, um, so I call this um, unintentional eyewitness support. So it's kind of like what happens is you talk to an eye. We separate the eyewitnesses, and but sometimes they'll talk to each other before we get there. But sometimes one witness will tell you something, and you'll think, "Yeah, I don't know, that makes no sense." They'll say something that just, it just, it's just odd, like it's missing something. Now he's saying, no, I'm telling you, this is the way it happened. But you're thinking, there's no way it happened that way. It doesn't make any sense. And then you'll find another witness hours later, and he'll say something that now makes sense of the first person's statement, right? Um, this kind of happened. This is, this is unintentional eyewitness support. What's great about it is now, okay, I, like I, had, a, I had a puzzle piece, and it was missing certain elements. I'm like, man, it makes no sense that, that this guy comes along and he says something that fills in the gap. And now I've got a story I can make sense of because this guy, and he, and by the way, this guy's statement had gaps in it also that this guy helps fill in. This happens a lot in the gospel authors where somebody will say something about, like, for example, the trial of Jesus um, and that is mysterious. Uh, and it's, it's assumed that you know the answer to this. Well, I don't know. the. If I only had the one gospel, I'd be going, what the heck? Is that, why is that in there? Well, then it turns out you read the other gospel, and he inserts that piece that makes sense of the first gospel, even though he has gaps in his testimony also. So it's, it, that's why we talk about harmonizing the gospels. What we do is when we get eyewitnesses, they each bring in a piece of the puzzle. And we put all the pieces together, and now we have a robust picture of what happened at the crime scene. Hmm. Now. 
defense attorneys are going to make a big deal out of the fact that this guy's statement does not exactly match this guy's statement, but we know they puzzle together well. Same thing happens in the Gospels. They are different. And you would think, if I was going to make this the case for Jesus, I would get rid of the differences. But it turns out that's what reliable eyewitness testimony looks like. We want to preserve the differences. As a matter of fact, the one thing I tell my dispatcher when she assigns me to a homicide is I tell her, I'm going to be an hour before I can get dressed and get there. So I'll just tell her, have the officers at the scene separate the eyewitnesses. Because I don't want them to talk to each other and align up their stories. I want them to be apparently contradictory, messy. I'll put them together. I don't want them putting them. I get paid for this, not them. So I want to do that. So I'm just trying to preserve the differences. And I never saw that as a weakness of the Gospels. I think that's a strength of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. The idea that, that there's only one version of Scripture for the Mormon text that's troublesome for me, mm-hmm. right? We don't have one version of this. If you, all you had was Luke, you'd know enough to be saved, or Mark, or Matthew, or John. You'd know enough to be saved. But only when you put all four together in the puzzle do you have the best, clearest picture of Jesus. I, I'm new to really like reading through the Bible and studying and diving into the Word really over the last year. And so I just read the New Testament first time right. I start to finish Yes. Uh, not just piecing it together with church and everything else. I've been yeah. a Christian my whole life, gone to church, but never really read the Bible myself. And, uh, and as I read it now, I was struck by something that I haven't really asked anybody about yet because it's recent. I want to ask you, which is okay. that in, in John, okay. I felt like the way that John talked about and quoted Jesus, mm-hmm. I felt like Jesus was talking as if he was trying to prove himself and he was talking with yes. a different kind of like harshness. And it didn't feel like the same voice of Jesus that I read in the other three Gospels. And I yeah. haven't had to really ask anybody about this yet. So I'd like to hear. Okay, sure. So one of the things that makes eyewitness uh, testimony slightly different is when, as the order, first of all, um, we try to separate eyewitnesses. But if, if, if they haven't been separated. So imagine I've got three eyewitnesses and I ask them independently. They each tell me a piece of the story. Got it. Perfect. Perfect. It's got some similarities, but there are some small differences. But it turns out over my shoulder, there's been a guy standing, listening in the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know he was a witness. And now he says, oh, by the way, I'm also a witness. Oh, really? Well, you've not heard everyone testify. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, come on over here. What, what do you got for me? And now he's going to come in, and there's a good chance, uh, as in my case, where if I don't stop him and say, I want you to pretend like I don't know anything, like I haven't talked. Pretend like you didn't hear what those people told me. Pretend like I don't know anything, and you got to tell me everything from the very beginning. Can you imagine? Just do your best to ignore what everyone else said and just tell me everything as if I know nothing. That's my best chance of getting a good statement. If I don't do that, guess what he's going to do? He is going to fill in what he knows was not yet said that he now thinks is important. And all that was true, but listen, i got to tell you that this also happened over here too. And he won't even mention any of the details the first three gave me. Why? Because the order in which you interview somebody is important. And if they think the other two, if they're already familiar with the first testimony, they are going to, unless you stop them, they are going to be inclined to just fill in the gaps. What we have with John is the last of the three gospels, clearly written with an understanding of the other three. John's simply filling in gaps. And also, I think what he's doing is, is, in case you're unclear, let me tell it to you so you won't be unclear. This also happens if you're the last guy who's being interviewed. You know, yeah, I, look, this, that's that guy was a, that, who did the robbery. You know, he was a customer here. No one else mentioned that. 
Well, I just want you to know that because they should all, the witnesses should all know him because he's been, he's been in here all the time. Hmm. Well, nobody else told me that. Why does he tell me? Because he knows the others didn't and he wants to make sure that this aspect is covered. That's what John's always doing is he wants to make sure that this aspect is covered. It's not as though what most people will complain about is they'll say, well, man, Jesus seems it's a high, they call it a high Christology in John, this notion that Jesus is very obviously divine and even calls himself out as the great I am. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not as though that the high Christology of Jesus doesn't exist in the other gospels. It does, but they say it differently. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you, uh, Justin, do you have kids? I do. I have, I have a one-year-old and I have a second on the way in March. So I'm new. Not very old. Uh, <laughs> those of you who hear, I, my kids are all grown, like you know, 31 to 22. Um, so they're, they're just a little bit, you know, but I guarantee you, if you ask my 31 year old son who had time alone with me before the others were born, and if you just asked him to characterize who I am, and then you ask my 22 year old daughter, who was the baby in the family, <laughs> you would probably think they're describing two different guys. <laughs> and, and you know, they are not. It's just that each when a witness comes and testifies, uh, they bring more than their observations. They bring their likes, dislikes, their experiences, their preferences. They bring all this to the table. Mm-hmm. And all of that, their interests really shape. You know, my daughter doesn't have as much interest in the theological uh, things that I, I'm interested in as my son does. So my son, if you ask, what does your dad think about mm, eschatology? Well, he could probably tell you pretty much where I stand on all those issues. My daughter would go, like, I have no clue. Mm-hmm. Not her interest. Not paying attention to that. What kind of pants does your dad wear? My son could not tell you. My daughter could tell you. Well, it's like whatever you're interested in, that's why you go to different kinds of witnesses to get different kinds of information. Hmm. And this clothing issue, I typically would try to find a woman. Mm-hmm. They will notice those things more. We're really bad about like clothing is not important. Sometimes we don't even know what we're. If I told you to close your eyes and tell me what you're wearing, a lot of guys couldn't tell you what they're wearing right now. So it's, 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 you just go to different kinds of witnesses to get to. And so John does sound different, mm-hmm. but that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. And he's pretty open that he's trying to yes. prove it to people. And like, as a matter of fact, he picks a select number of miracles. Remember yeah. all these guys saw all, if you've listed every miracle mentioned by any gospel author, you'll see at 35. John doesn't mention all 35. John picks out a select uh, kinds of miracles because he's trying to prove that Jesus has command over this. He's got command over that. He's got command over this. He's making his case for the Jesus he knew by selecting out those miracles that others mention, but he leaves out a bunch of stuff that they, they do all they mention that he doesn't mention at all. Mm. You won't get a lot of parables from John. I'll get those from Luke. Don't get those from me. Here's what you didn't get. Right. He's thinking these guys haven't proved yeah. strongly enough for the doubters. Yes, yeah, that's okay though, because that's not unusual. I, I, I see no. Look, I'll tell you what's happening sometimes in, in scholarship right now. There's a, a sense that because I see differences between the gospels, I need to jump to some kind of literary theory to explain the differences. I see a lot of this right now. Oh, it's a genre of of, of, of writing biographies in the first century where it was okay to exaggerate certain things or change the order to make a point. Guys, you don't have to do that because you're going to see that regular witnesses today on a crime that occurs today 
will have the exact same level of variation between the accounts. Hmm. You're not going to go home and go, oh, it must be a genre in 2019 that causes witnesses to respond. No, you're not going to do that. You're just going to say, this is the nature of eyewitnesses. So you don't need to jump to literary theories to figure out why there's a difference in the eyewitness statements. I've never understood anybody who wanted to do that. They just have never interviewed eyewitnesses. Yeah. That's the one thing you get stuck doing before you ever solve a case. You spend years in patrol just interviewing eyewitnesses to give to the detective. So, I mean, I've interviewed, I can't tell thousands of eyewitnesses. Good. Never agree. And I'm like, hey, you know what? Not my problem. <laughs> the detective's got to figure that out. I'm just a patrol officer. Like, I never used to, would care. I would never even try to help. This is how lazy patrol officers are, right? We don't even try to, to like, ask a follow-up question. That might make it, I figure that's his problem. Yeah. I, I ended up watches coming here pretty quick here. Okay, did, I'm gonna get this done. I got four more houses to knock on the doors. Okay, I see some differences in your stuff. You can figure that out later. I'm going home at the end of shift. So, so we end up with reports where no one even tried to work out the differences. They just basically said, "There you go." And then we got to go back and find those witnesses and ask, you know, do secondary interviews. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, uh, don't let the differences in the gospels bug you. It's good. But by the way, it's going to bug your kids. You just gave an exceptional way to explain it, you know, just to, I'll remember that an eyewitness account, like any kind of murder, any kind of crime, anything that multiple people see. I mean, even, even it doesn't even have to be a crime or something bad. You know, if three of us are talking about the Packers football game from Sunday night, yes. you know, we're going to give three different accounts of what happened. We're going to leave out certain things. We're all going to remember different things. And Somebody's going to talk about the refs being bad to the yes. Packers. Somebody's going to yes. think they were good to the Packers and they ripped off the other team. So, yeah. Okay. Let me just say one thing since you mentioned that, right? Because I there's a there's the old chapel chaplain of the Packers is no longer the chaplain of the Packers, but he was for years. Uh, is a guy who was a church planner here in Southern California. So I had a chance to do a lot of Packers chapels, um, and so it was after a number of years, I think for five years, I was doing chapels with the Packers. Now I want to just challenge you, the same way I challenged the Packers. It was back when Jordy was still with the team, you know, and, and it was pretty cool. Uh, Cobb was there, Randall was there, everyone was still at the team. Um, but I will tell you that all of us who are in, all of you who are part of this group, um, it seems to me that in the first part of the group, it's really about your Christian faith. It's grounded on your Christian faith, right? This is what the name of your podcast is or the name of the what you're doing here as far as the ministry is. It's faith first, right? Yep, faith to influence. Yep. Right. Faith in what? It's faith in the Christian claims. Yes. Right. Okay. We call ourselves Christ followers. But for most of us, you could go a lot deeper in your descriptions um, on what the Packers are doing right now and, and why this coach is going to work or not work, or why this offense is going to work for Aaron or it's not. Uh, is he going to take a, take a, take his lead? Is he going to want to be so far? It seems like it's working pretty good. Mm-hmm. And you'll be able to say, you, you can make a case for why it was good to move from McCarthy or not good to move from McCarthy. I know people who can, if I say, Hey, here's a pen, you can write a thousand words on this. But when it comes to what I write, to me, give me a thousand words on why you think that the triune nature of God is a Christian essential for your kids. Hmm. Good luck with that. Right. Good luck even being able to write out in a thousand words what the Trinity describes. Mm. Now, here's my thing. We say we're one thing, but it turns out you, uh, if you want me to know what you love, let me see your podcast. What are you listening to? Let me see your time in front of the TV. What are you watching? 
what you're spending your time on, that's what you really love. The rest is all just cheap talk. That's all it is. Talk is cheap is a biblical expression in Ecclesiastes. Most people don't even know that because they've never read Ecclesiastes. Right. But the point is, this is something that we as Christian brothers either need to get in all the way or get out because you're making the rest of us embarrassed. Yeah. Because we can't help our kids because we don't even know how to answer the simplest questions. Yeah. We certainly lead them to who they should support. If I guarantee you, if your kids came to you as teenagers, would you be better equipped to explain to them why Christianity is true or to help them with their fantasy football team? <laughs> Which of those would you be better prepared to do? Now, I'll tell you, on my, if look at my podcasts, okay, I listen to a lot of podcasts. The vast majority are ESPN and Fox Sports podcasts. They are. It's Colin Coward. It's first take. It's, you know, first takes first. It's you name it. I listen to all of them. Speak for yourself. I listen to the entire daily lineup. I got my TV on up here right now. You guys are making me miss this game right now. Okay. Denver's Nuggets are playing right now. And I, I can't watch it because I'm talking to you guys. You brought up an interesting word earlier. I wanted you to explain that to, to the group. But I think I think a big part of, of, a, of a failure of man is we don't have a good understanding of eschatology. Can yeah. you explain that it what what that is and why well, that is there are certain there are certain things that are non-essentials in the Christian faith and certain things that are essential, like in anything, right? There are certain things you have to say are essentially you have to embrace in order to call yourself an American, let's say. And certain things we can disagree on, right? And still call ourselves Americans. There are certain things in your family you would say are familial essentials. If you want to be part of this family, you gotta toe the line in these areas. There are other things where you say, hey, that's okay either way. You're still part of the family. Well, that's true for Christianity. Uh, the essentials, for example, deity of Christ. There's been never, I mean, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you're in some other category. You might believe some other kind of believer, but you're not a Christian believer. This is a clear claim of Christianity, the triune nature of God. The salvation is a free gift that can't be earned. These are Christian essentials. But there's a bunch of other stuff that's not essential. Okay, Arminianism and Calvinism. But you know anything about those two arguments? That's a that's been going on. That's been argued since well since 1500s. We've been arguing about that. It's not an essential. You can follow. But in other words, we're trying to figure out where what's the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free agency. That's what the whole discussion is really about. Um, we're never going to be able to answer that. It just, it's not an essential though um, for salvation. We can we're free to discuss it. But even eschatology, what will happen at end times? Uh, what, at what point does the rapture occur? Does it occur? Yeah. Are you a millennial, premillennial, amillennial? All the different ways we can talk about eschatology. Okay, those are non-essentials. As a matter of fact, I don't even take a position on those because I think I've been told by Jesus that we are to be waiting as in anticipation, but not trying to guess when it's going to occur. So I try to take that position: be ready, but don't try to figure it out in advance, because that's not that's we're just told not to do that. So I'm pretty open-handed. I've got an article on our website at coldcasechristianity.com that just gives you an overview of all the views, but I don't try to land one of them mm-hmm. in order to provoke you in one direction or another. It's a non-essential. Mm-hmm. So I just try with my kids to be able to describe and make a case for essentials. Mm-hmm. And there's only a few things, really, that, that you have to master. But your kids are going to ask questions that are really about, okay, if God created everything, who created God? If we don't have an original document of the New Testament, not a single original 
document? How can we trust what we do have? These are questions that the culture is throwing at us. And by the way, it used to be when you first encounter these kinds of objections when you would go to college. Now, you, as soon as your parents gives you one of these, the entire world of skepticism is at your fingertips. The glowing rectangle changed everything. So we have to be ready, I think, as men, to, to whatever it is we love, I expect us to make a case for it. And you're already doing that. There are some people I know who, met who love certain superhero movies, and they will always, they know the entire, like, I'm so far behind on this, I, I can't tell you, there's no point in my even going to a new superhero movie, because they're all like, now they're like part of a longer narrative, and I stopped going four years ago, so now I'm like, I got to catch up, and I don't make any sense of it, right? I don't know what the new Captain America movie, I'm, 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 I'm now out of sequence, but I know people who that's a priority, <laughs> and, and they spend time on that. And their kids can talk about that or why the Star Wars film sucks or whatever it is, right? Like, I mean, that, look, what, what, what you love, you talk about. When was the last time you had a, a, a fun, engaging conversation about the things of God with your kids? Hmm. Do we ever have those conversations? Do we ever talk about this at the dinner table in a way that's not preachy? We're just like thinking about like, how does it sound? Like ideas about how God acts in the world why is that so much evil in the world if god is all powerful and all loving it sure seems like either he can't stop it which means he's not all powerful or he doesn't care to stop it which means he's not all loving hmm. how can he be both all powerful and all loving and allow this stuff to happen okay what's your answer to that <laughs> so you want me to solve the problem of evil before we check out here in two minutes <laughs> uh, I think there are lots of ways. I mean, I've written a lot about this and there's the whole chapter in God's crime scene about this. I, I do think that um, there's lots of factors involved, the, the, the least of which is, you're going to talk about this, aren't you? Okay. Um, so if you think about life as an atheist, as a line segment starts at birth, line to the point of death, that's a line segment, dot, line, dot. If we're lucky as an atheist, we get 90 years pain-free, die in my sleep, easy breezy, right? Now, if I go 40 years, get cancer, suffer for 10 more years and die at 50, I'm going to be pissed because I expected to get 90 pain-free years. Now I'm suffering evil, pain, and I die 40 years earlier. That's going to make me mad. But what if my notion about what life is, is the problem? It's not a line segment, dot, line, dot. What if it's a ray? You know your geometry? Dot line that goes through a second dot and goes off into eternity in that direction. That would change everything. Because you know people who have suffered when they were kids, they were born with a heart malfunction. And for the first year, they were in the hospital constantly getting all these surgeries. A terrible, terrible period of time. By the time they were five, they don't ever remember it. Evil is always measured in the context of your life. By the time they're 35, whatever, whatever I'm good. I mean, I have a scar. It was such a small, it was no beat. Now, they, so in other words, if, if, if our view of, of, of life is correct as Christians, we are a ray, dot, line, goes through a second dot, goes off into eternity. And that means that every year you spend in eternity, your 90 years here on earth seems less and less long. Hmm. Until finally, a million years into eternity, your 90 years here on earth, like a millisecond. You could suffer through that first year as a child, not even know about it by year five. And if you had 90 crappy years, if our view of life is correct, 
that is a millisecond compared to eternity. Hmm. So it turns out, yeah, I think that the problem of evil is a problem for atheists because they hold a view of the world that's a line segment. It shouldn't be a problem for you as a Christian. If it is, it's because you are thinking like an atheist. And if we just change our thinking on this, this is why people who really get this, they they don't mourn. They have a weird way of mourning. They're like, nothing seems to like, like everything seems to bounce off of them. They, they have this certain kind of joy. They, they get it. They get it, but it's not a line segment. Hmm. And we're called to mourn, but not to mourn like, the, the, like those who have no faith, who no, don't, know, no, no, don't know God. We're not to mourn like people who think it's a line segment, right? Because that means all of us are going to be on the other side of that second dot at some point. Let's just get there. Right. You know, I think that a lot of us will say this is true, but we don't live that way. And to be honest, we're kind of like, yeah, I want to get the most out of this life. Right? I, I worked cases where the kid was six years old, shot in the forehead by his dad. Well, if this view I hold is true, he's not dead. That's just his body. You know, his body's still here. But we'll, well, I'm going to meet this kid one day. I have a question for you. I read an article today and then I saw a news program that was regarding the same thing on masculinity today in men. And I'd like your uh, quick uh, opinion on that as the Me Too movement is, is growing. This mm-hmm. The new thing for women is being like the self-independent, I don't need a man thing. Yeah. Do, you have any, do you have a view on that of where maybe man went off as like the male species to where women are now are trending this way? Well, I mean, look, there's a great book on marriage called Love and Respect. Have you, have you heard of it? Have mm-hmm. you, you, you read that? Okay, so I think that's a great. So the Christian view is that we are both, as a married couple, we are designed in the image of God. Go back and read Genesis. You'll see that really man by himself, although he is in God's image, he does not fully represent the trying nature of God until he's joined in marriage. And then they say, look, we've created them. Together, they are in our image. Together. So we there's something about the other sex that each sex needs to be complete and in the image of God. And the difference really comes down to the love and respect issue. That we are strong creatures that command and demand respect. They are physically weaker there's no debating this. The biology, you can be an atheist and still understand the biology that the fastest woman in the world would not even qualify for college uh, you know, championship. She, she wouldn't be on track. I mean, the, the, I don't care how great the, the, the strongest tennis player in the world, Serena, is not going to be able to compete against the number 100 male on the, on, the, on the tour. It's just the nature of the physical structure of the hormones, bone density, muscle density. We are the stronger. They are the weaker. They are designed physically weak, not intellectually weak, physically weaker. And there's something about, and they, they want to be loved and cared for. And so what we do is we do that, and then they end up respecting us. And even if they're not respecting us, we still love them anyway, and they'll start to respect us. That's the beauty of the mystery of this connection. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that is the way we've been wired by God. So what happens is anytime you deviate from this, when a woman is disrespectful to the man, or the man is unloving to a woman, things go sideways. And I think that's just that's just that's in scripture, it's in Ephesians 4. I mean, it's just it's just the nature of how we are wired. And it's, by the way, you cannot remove it because it's not really based so much on a theory. 
from a theological construct. It's based on the biochemistry in men and women that create large uh, um, representatives of the species over here and more emotionally smaller it's, it's testosterone and, and, and estrogen. I mean, he, that, that's why when people try to transition to one sex to the other, what are they dumping? And they're trying to dump the, the hormones from the other sex into their body to try to become that. I mean, so because this is the way, if I thought I was an evolved creature, I would still take this view because I would just say, well, the reason why it's this way is through evolutionary processes. What Christianity does is it recognizes that difference and it, it, it tells you why you're having problems. Because you're not loving that person. And she's having problems because she's not respecting him. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, what, what floats the boat. I'm not nearly as concerned about whether she loves me as I am about whether she respects me. That's my little things. Like when your wife says, hey, there's a stop sign there. Like, really, I couldn't see that? <laughs> it's like, I think it's like a respect issue, right? Like, like if you respected me, you would let me just, don't, don't. I'm driving, I'm the driver. Why would that always bother us when women try to tell us how to drive? Well, it's not because we would feel unloved. We feel disrespected. And then we bark. And then she feels unloved. <laughs> now the cycle starts, right? That crazy cycle he talks about in that book. Mm. So it's really about us trying to make break the crazy cycle is that even if you're being disrespected, you're going to love her back anyway. And what ends up happening is she catches it and she starts to respect you again. Mm. And then the thing stops. So that's something I think that is my, so my view basically is grounded in the biological differences between the two. Uh, sides of the two sexes and species. And I don't think we can get away from that. I don't think there's any way you're ever going to be able to get away from that. You can talk about like, it's just a matter of, 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 of social construct. No, your biology and the hormones that are flowing through your veins right now are not a matter of social construct. That is just raw, naked biology. And you're not going to be able to change that. Jim, if, if our guys here want to connect with you beyond this call, how can they follow you? Which, which of your books would you recommend reading first? Um, I would probably read Cold Case Christianity first, and that gives you a good foundation because the website where I post everything is called coldcasechristianity.com. And so that book makes the case like we talked about from those four aspects of eyewitness reliability. That's what that book does. But more importantly, I mean, I think that um, it all comes down to like, like look, guys, by, just, by the way, 1700 reviews <laughs> Full five stars, number one bestseller. Well, well, it's, I mean, we've had some luck with that one book, but but I'll tell you that that it's it comes down to us deciding. You, you, I always tell tell people this: look, we can get so much information online right now for free. Mm-hmm. Do that first. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of good resources out there. I, I've got how many are a thousand, two thousand articles and, and videos and uh, podcasts on our website. They're all free. Um, I think there's enough, and they're bite sized. Do something every day. Just read something every day. I have a phone app. If you download the phone app, it's free. I deliver a piece of content every day. You'll get notified. It'll go, oh, something new. Hit the button, you can read it. It's like a four minute read. So I think what you do is you, you it's, it's really about us deciding. Like, what is this thing that, where are we going to spend our time? Right? Because, I mean, I get on score, you know, that app for your phone that has scores on it all the time. I mean, I get on score and I'm reading through all the daily news. I spend time on that thing. My dad, that's really the only app on his phone that he religiously opens is that that score app, right? It's this one right here. 
that's the one that he's constantly opening and reading all that stuff. Well, look, it's, it's what, you know, it's what comes in comes out from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm suggesting to all of you, if you are really, if the faith to influence, sometimes what we really are interested in is the influence. Mm -hmm. But if you're interested in the faith thing, then tell me how much time you're spending growing your faith. How much time are you even spending informing your faith? Mm. So I think as men, it's like, man, I want respect. Mm -hmm. And here's how you get it. You be consistent. Mm -hmm. You can love people, but not respect them. And so for us as men, it's going to be about, hey, walk the walk, dude. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, I think you're in a position where you can at least, then at least have something I can say, hey, you ought to respect me because I'm trying to walk the walk here. Mm -hmm. Daniel uh, shared at our last retreat that if you don't have one hour for God each day, you need two. And yeah, that, that really impacted me. And I've, I've spent an hour with God every day since because I hadn't ever in my life spent that much time with God. And it's, it's been life changing. I encourage everybody. Well, it's like, you know, it's like, I, yeah. I love it. there you go. That's it. Uh, and I can tell you that, look, guys, it's not that we're saying, hey, you need to tell a bunch of stuff you're doing and add a bunch of time to your life. And now you have a whole set of prior. No, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that you're already spending time on stuff. Mm -hmm. It's about reprioritizing. Mm -hmm. so you've got nooks and crannies in your life. When you're in the car, you're listening to something on the way to work, on the way home. You've got choices now. Those could be anything you want is available to you. You know that you're podcasting. Okay, so, so the question is, what are you doing in the nooks and crannies? That stuff that's discretionary time that you're already using it for something, that's what we as men have to reprioritize. Good stuff. All right, guys. If you're open to it, we'll have to have you back on at some point. Yeah, yeah no problem. Sounds good. This, Let this me know. incredibly valuable. What a blessing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you guys. See you later. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening in. I have nothing to offer, nothing to point you to, and nothing to sell you. I just give you my humble thanks and appreciate you. And until the next one, adios. Adios.